Welcome to Season 2 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome back to the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President at Trapello, and today we have Dr. Adam Brufsky, Medical Director for the Women's Cancer Program at UPMC Hillman Cancer Center. That would be the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And we asked Dr. Brufsky, who attended the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, to come on and share his insights of how he believes precision medicine continues to make an impact on breast cancer care. Dr. Brusky, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, so to begin and orient uh, some of our audience, some of some of our audience um, are avid uh, researchers, followers of the news and uh, data in breast cancer, but certainly some are not. But can you start by telling us what the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium is and why this meeting is significant to breast cancer doctors? Well, this meeting was founded over 30 years ago uh, by a man named Chuck Coltman, uh, who was a director of one of the large cooperative groups, SWOG, the Southwest Oncology Group, to really have uh, researchers from around the world uh, discuss breast cancer topics. And it's been held in San Antonio ever since, I think this is the 37th or 38th year. Uh, And basically, it really is a, a forum, unlike ASCO or any other large meetings. Uh, where really it's focused completely on breast cancer. And it also, it turns out, it used to be, you know, clinical, and then now the AACR got involved again. Uh, And so really we see basic translational and clinical um, research presented, and it's really nice to get the interaction uh, between all of us uh, at this meeting. It's a large meeting. It's probably about, uh, I think there's a lot of international attendance now. It's over 10,000 people, 10,000, 15,000 people come to it every year. Wow. So when you attended this year, um, what are some kind of major topics that stood out to you? And we'll dive into to each topic and what you thought was significant for people to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a number of things. Um, I think the, the biggest abstracts are usually presented on the first day on Wednesday morning. Uh, and it really had a lot to do with HER2 uh, positive, uh, both early stage and metastatic breast cancer. There's some very practice-changing uh, research that was presented that morning. Um, other things that were presented were some interesting data on uh, new topics in the use of circulating tumor cells, circulating DNA, uh, to prognosticate and to help guide therapy, uh, both in the uh, early-stage setting in triple-negative breast cancer, uh, as well as actually uh, in the metastatic setting in all kinds of breast cancer, uh, both um, ER-positive HER2 positive, uh, as well as um, uh, triple negative. Uh, Another interesting thing to me that really stood out uh, at this meeting uh, was data that was presented from the Women's Health Initiative that we can get into, uh, really suggesting that hormone replacement therapy with estrogen alone, not only does it not increase the incidence of breast cancer, it reduces the incidence of breast cancer, as well as uh, improve survival for breast cancer. So it's a really, that was a very interesting uh, abstract presented by Rowan Chablowski uh, from um, 
Los Angeles. It's a very interesting abstract. So we could talk about those three things, I think, are three very, very important things that I think uh, were discussed in San Antonio this year. Well, you mentioned that the the data findings from uh, in her two were practice changing. Um, what were those things that were practice changing, and, and what types of patients is this data going to impact? So the way the way this works is that uh, the treatment of her two positive metastatic breast cancer and early stage breast cancer really has been one of the great successes of the last uh, twenty years uh, in oncology in general. The development of anti HER two therapies like trastuzumab and pertuzumab. Uh, and TDM1, which is an antibody drug conjugate with trastuzumab, really have changed the nature uh, of practice. In fact, uh, the vast majority of women now with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer can live up to five years or more. In fact, there was data that was presented at the last ASCO meeting uh, in 2019 uh, where fully 37%, 40% of women were still alive eight years uh, after diagnosis of metastatic or 2 positive disease. Mm, wow. And so, you know, most of us right now uh, will give trastuzumab, pertuzumab, uh, and uh, taxane as first ther- first-line therapy. Uh, Second-line therapy, they get uh, trastuzumab, imtansine, or TDM1, the antibody drug conjugate. But the real issue uh, is after that, what do we do? And the third-line treatment of HER2-positive uh, metastatic breast cancer is really, uh, really uh, in a large sense, uh, up for grabs. Um, I think a lot of us would just give chemotherapy and trastuzumab, just go through five or six different chemos. Uh, but really what happens about 50% of the time is that women will develop brain metastases. And how do we treat those metastases? How do we prevent them? Really has become a fairly intense area of research and focus. So at last year's ASCO meeting, to kind of set the stage, uh, a HER2 tyrosine kinase, an oral drug called ratnib. Uh, was actually compared uh, to another drug, an older drug called lapatinib in this setting. They were both given with capecitabine. Uh, and actually, uh, naratinib improved uh, progression-free survival in these women by about two and a half months, which is about 25%, so about 8.8 months. Uh, overall survival was modestly improved. And I think what was most important in that trial, it was called NALA, uh, was that uh, the incidence of symptomatic brain metastases was reduced by about 10 to 15%. Now, the problem with neuratinib is that it has a lot of diarrhea. Diarrhea can be tough to control, although I think we're doing a much better job with it now. We have a lot of strategies that have been tested. Uh, you know, dose, uh, slow dose escalation of the neuratinib can kind of help with that. But anyway, that's at the stage for this year's San Antonio. And there was another drug similar to neuratinib called tucatinib, uh, which is made by, well, it's being developed by Seattle Genetics. And the interesting thing about tucatinib and how it's different than neratinib is that tucatinib uh, binds the HER2 tyrosine kinase, but not the HER1, that's the EGF receptor tyrosine kinase. And um, because of that, there's very little diarrhea, a lot less diarrhea, a lot less other side effects uh, than neratinib. And so, you know, clearly was a very interesting drug to develop. Uh, and their trial was women who were third line and beyond with HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer were randomized to see tucatinib, uh, trastuzumab, and capecitabine, or trastuzumab and capecitabine, which is a known third-line therapy uh, for metastatic breast cancer. And in fact, what happened in this trial uh, is that not only was progression-free survival significantly improved, but overall survival was significantly improved. It's very rare in metastatic breast cancer Mm. to see an overall survival benefit. So what happened there 
uh, is that uh, additionally, they looked at women who had brain metastases at baseline. Uh, and these were women, you know, was an MRI was required in everybody, and about half of the women had brain metastases. In fact, about 10% of women had brain metastases that were small enough and asymptomatic enough that they were not even treated with radiation or anything else. So in, in that group of women with known brain metastases, they also had an improvement in progression-free and overall survival, which was quite dramatic. And so, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is an, the improvements in relative terms were 50, 60%. So it was really quite dramatic. And I think for this reason, this drug now uh, is under review by the FDA. Uh, and we all expect it to be approved probably within the next four to six months. Um, they have their, uh, Seattle Genetics is going to have an expanded access program, we hope, uh, that at least has national scope in the U.S. So most people, you know, could potentially get this drug before approval. Um, but we'll see what happens. So that was probably a very, very exciting abstract that was published in the Internal Medicine, I think, that day or the day after. This is like a few weeks ago. Yeah. So the, the other big thing in metastatic or 2 positive breast cancer um, is a drug called um, DS8201. Um, I forgot the, the I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but it now has a name. Um, I just, something in hair or two or something like that. But the bottom line is that I'll call it DS8201. And the idea behind this drug is that it's it's trastuzumab molecules, an antibody drug conjugate, where the trastuzumab molecule um, is bound to a derivative of a, of a topotecan. So it's like a derivative of exotecan. Um, and this is a, a toporisomerase inhibitor that really has been tried every so often in metastatic breast cancer, very active in colon cancer and some other cancers. But in breast, you really haven't used it that much. And it also, the interesting thing is the linker uh, that links the drug to the antibody um, actually can be dissolved kind of in the extracellular space. So what that means is that you get what's called a bystander effect. So the, the drug is delivered, but the antibody doesn't have to get into the cell for the drug to kind of be detached from the antibody and just leak into the cells that potentially don't endocytose the antibody. So the bottom line is that for a variety of reasons, had a lot of theoretical reasons that it could be better. So they, the, the, the group is initially, um, uh, um, let me think for a minute what the, what the group was that did it. But anyway, the bottom line is that um, uh, what happened uh, in this trial, oh, Daiichi, it was Daiichi antibody, and it's actually licensed by AstraZeneca. So the thing is that what happened in this initial trial, it was a phase two trial, it was not randomized, and women who had progressed through at least three anti-HER2 therapies in the metastatic setting and almost everybody had had trastuzumab, about 60% had had pertuzumab, about, I think almost all of them had uh, TDM1, that is a trastuzumab and tansine, uh, antibody drug conjugate, uh, were given DS8201 every three weeks until progression. And in this trial, the median progression-free survival was over, I think, 16 to 18 months. The overall survival wasn't reached. And these were women who were heavily, heavily pretreated. Uh, and, you know, there's six prior therapies was the mean number of therapy. So really to see this sort of result, um, and the response rate was 60, 70%, to see this sort of result is really kind of, to us, suggesting that the natural history of the disease may be changed by the drug. And so we're all very excited about this. It got um, approved by the US FDA with accelerated approval based on this trial. Again, this was published in the Internal of Medicine, uh, I think a day or two after its presentation. Uh, and um, really, this has now changed the natural history of the disease. We, I think, I mean, I think it's it's called in her two or something like that. I think it's the name of it. 
Um, and, it, you know, I think obviously insurance has to get on board, and, but it's going to be widely available now for women who have progressed through at least three anti-HER2 therapies or two or three. So it's going to be third line and beyond uh, and probably will be the standard of care. There are several randomized phase three trials of this drug. Uh, they're currently ongoing. Uh, one is against TDM1 to determine uh, what the second line therapy for HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer will be. Uh, there's another one as third line therapy where they're comparing DSA to one to trastuzumab uh, and capecitabine. Uh, and then finally, there's a trial. It turns out there's activity in this drug in HER2 low, that is, uh, patients who have, say, HER2 1 plus or 2 plus that ordinarily wouldn't, would not receive trastuzumab based therapy. Um, but there seems to be activity response rate in phase one, phase, phase one trials uh, of about probably 40, 50%. So there's actually a, a trial now in triple negative and ER positive breast cancer uh, in the third line and beyond as well. That, uh, again, I think that this drug really could uh, potentially be a real game changer in our business. The only problem is that there is interstitial lung disease. Uh, it's idiosyncratic. It can occur at any time. Um, it occurs in major symptoms, usually shortness of breath and cough. Uh, and I think that we're really trying to get people, once we start using this drug, to really monitor uh, subjects very, very carefully um, to be sure uh, that... Um, to be sure that, you know, you detect this quickly, you put someone on steroids, you do a CT scan, you stop the drug. And this occurs about probably, you know, it can be fairly severe, you know, at about 5 to 10% of women. Uh, in fact, the case fatality rate was about 2% uh, in this trial uh, from the, the interstitial lung disease. So on the one hand, uh, it's, it's fabulous in terms of efficacy. On the other, we're going to have to be very careful how we use it and how we monitor women who are on it. So those are really, I think, the two big things. In the HER I mean, there's some other things we could talk about, but those are probably the two big things in the HER2 positive space, I think, that are very important uh, that came out of uh, San Antonio. You know, there's a tendency when we hear this news coming out of meetings like San Antonio Breast or other meetings throughout the year to get really excited about it. But we know there is uh, some time before um, the data is published, the FDA might approve the therapy and right. then the NCCN gets on board with putting it on, um, you know, their approved pathways, if you, if you will. Do you or your patients experience any frustration behind that? And, and how do you view that? Yeah, I mean, the, the bigger issue is insure, it's the payers. Um, I think in the case of DSA 201, I think it's really nice uh, that the, the data has been published in a phase, you know, in the trial. It's widely accepted. Um, the US FDA gave it accelerated approval. Obviously, based on the fact that uh, Daiichi is doing these randomized phase three trials. Um, and I have no doubt in my mind that the NCCN committee, I'm not part of the NCCN committee, I'm part of the VIA Oncology Committee. It's a little bit different group. Um, we probably will put it on our path via Pathways in the next two or three months. Hmm. And I bet you NCCN will as well. That's not going to be the issue. The issue is the payers. And we experienced this with, with pertuzumab. I think in 2015, 2014, Producement, I think it was approved in 2015, you know, we had a delay of about three months, you know, before the payers got on board. But I think uh, Amgen is helping Daiichi out with this. Amgen licensed this drug from Daiichi. And I think Amgen's, you know, wide experience uh, in, in dealing with payers, I think will be very helpful uh, as this drug continues to be developed and uh, uh, promulgated. In terms of uh, to catnib, it's a little bit different. Seattle is a little bit smaller company. Uh, and as a result, you know, we're going to have to see, you know, they've applied, obviously, we all, this is public information, 
uh, they've applied for, uh, you know, uh, an NDA, a new drug application, the FDA. And, you know, I'm assuming it will be approved in the next six months, if not sooner, you know, but it's a little bit different. Cialgenics is a little bit smaller company. So, you know, it really depends on the company's size, what resources they have, their connections to the payers, you know, when these will be approved. And I think in the case of um, uh, Tucatnet, they will have an expanded access program. So, you know, and the hope is it'll be kind of on a national scope that no one will have to go more than 150, 200 miles, you know, to, to get access to Tucatnip on expanded access. So that's the hope here for both of these drugs. Great news for breast cancer patients um, all over the world there. You bet. You mentioned in the area of liquid biopsy. Now, sure. we, we get a lot of, uh, I guess, requests from from listeners, and, and there's a lot of buzz around liquid biopsy. Um, sure. What were some of the, the news that came out at San Antonio that you thought were significant around liquid biopsy? Sure. So let me start off by saying I've been involved in this field for a number of years. And, you know, we, we used to use circulating tumor cells a lot in the metastatic setting. You know, because it appeared to predict the results of CT scans by about a month. So if you had a lot of circulating tumor cells in your blood over five per 7.5 cc's of blood um, and you followed someone, they would have progression on their CT scan a month later. So the ECOG, large cooperative group, uh, Eastern Oncology Cooperative Group, uh, did, a lar- did about a 500-patient phase three trial where women were randomized to usual care or care guided by a circulating tumor cell biopsy. And so if the circulating tumor cells were over five at one month, their chemo was changed to sort of their systemic therapy where they were on was changed to something else. And it turns out, it turned out there was no difference in survival, whether you did the CTC guided therapy or just did the, the standard of care therapy. And so that gave everybody a lot of pause. It seemed to be exciting. But the problem is that, and the problem with all of these tests, liquid biopsies, et cetera, really the, 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 the meat of the matter is, do we have any therapy that can affect the natural history? Yeah. If we detect the cancer earlier, that's what it comes down to. It's clear that all of these can detect the cancer earlier, but what can we do about it? So let me go through the two big things over San Antonio. There was two big things. One that kind of, I think, shows the utility and one that may show the utility. We'll have to see what happens. The first one was um, something called Plasma Match. And it was a trial that was done in England. It was about a little under 1,000 patients, like 800,000 patients. And the idea was they would do circulating tumor DNA, and they use a GARDEN 360 assay, which I believe is about 100 genes uh, that you test for on the blood. And what they did is they looked to see what kind of mutations came out from the cancer. And the most common one, which is not surprising, uh, was the mutation in the estrogen receptor. There was also mutation in P3 kinase. There was also mutations in HER2, about 4.5%. Uh, I think estrogen receptor was about 25%. I think P3 kinase was about 25%. Uh, AKT, which is another mutation, was about 5%. And HER2 mutation, not amplification, uh, a mutation in the tyrosine kinase domain of HER2 was about under 5%, 4.7%. So if you had an ESR mutation, uh, those women, about a couple, about 100 or something like that, were given high-dose fulvestrin. Like instead of giving it once a month, they gave it every two weeks. And that didn't work. So the bottom line is the progression research survival in that cohort was about two and a half months. And really, just no one responded. I mean, 8% of patients had a minimal response. So, you know, that didn't seem to work. But what did seem to work was that if you had a HER2 mutation uh, and they gave a drug, neratinib, that we had talked about before, which is a HER2 tyrosine kinase, the progression-free survival was about not eight or nine months. And the response rate was about 40% or something, 30 40%. So that had benefit. The last thing, which was kind of cool, 
was actually if you had a mutation in AKT, which I think was about three or four percent, as I said before, and you got an AKT inhibitor called capivacertid that you gave with fulvestrin, the progression-free survival of those women were about ten and a half months, and uh, I think the response rate was about thirty forty percent. So clearly, we have a few mutations that are what we call actionable in the breast cancer space that a circulating tumor DNA test may help. Now, right now in the breast cancer, we're all doing it now, um, at least in, in ER-positive metastatic disease. And the main reason we're doing that is because um, PICRE, which is um, alpelacib, a pediatric kinase inhibitor, which has been approved, needs to have a circulating uh, pediatric kinase mutation to get approved. And so we're all doing this now. And what at least Plasma Match has done is showed us that we really could look at AKT mutations and treat them as well as um, HER2 mutations and treat them. So I think that's kind of good and that's helping us because now we have therapy that can affect the disease. So the other big thing that was done is that, and people have been trying to do this for a long time, uh, there was a very nice uh, abstract that came from uh, University of Indiana, I think it was a lead organization, um, where they looked at women who were undergoing adjuvant therapy or neoadjuvant therapy or triple negative breast cancer. <clears throat> and what they found, they did circulating tumor cells and positive was over five, or they did circulating mutations. So they used uh, the foundation XT circulating DNA assay. And if you had any mutation, you were considered positive. And again, it was the limited set of, I think, 70 or 100 mutations in the foundation XT assay. And what they found is that if you had circulating tumor cells, or positive mutations in your blood or in your plasma, um, what they found is that your survival was worse than if you didn't have it. And so, you know, in fact, if you had both, your survival was was obviously the worst of all three. You know, you could have both are, are negative. That's the best survival. One is positive. It's intermediate. If both are positive, it was the worst survival. So the interesting thing there is we now have this. The question is, what can we do with it? Um, and there may be some interventions, in, in, at least in the triple negative space, maybe a PA3 kinase inhibitor, an AKT inhibitor, uh, immunotherapy, uh, chemotherapy with capecitabine. I mean, there are a lot of interventions we could try. You know, the issue is that we don't know right now if you have these circulating tumor cells or circulating tumor DNA, we don't know if any of these interventions will actually affect the natural history once we detect it. That's the big question. Mm -hmm. That's the question we have with circulating tumor cells you know, five years ago in the metastatic setting. And I think it's the, still the question that's outstanding now in the adjuvant setting. And I, we'll see. I mean, a lot of trials that are ongoing right now to try to figure out what to do with these patients that have either the circulating DNA or the circulating tumor cells. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, and we'll see where that goes. You've talked to us about HER2 positive patients and the continued innovation that we have there for those particular patients. And we talked about a liquid biopsy circulating tumor DNA, circulating tumor cells, uh, which continues to uh, be an area of investigation. But you mm -hmm. mentioned at the top of this that something that you thought was really interesting was the news around hormone replacement. Uh, right. Tell right. us a little bit about that. So this is something the Women's Health Initiative has been going. I mean, you know, we've had lots of, uh, uh, what's the word, a lot of epidemiologic data, you know, that has suggested that uh, hormone replacement in women can increase risk of breast cancer. I mean, that's been known since 2002. You know, all these big, you know, the Harvard's Women, Harvard's Women Health Study, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of women, the Nurses Health Study, you know, this epidemiologic data suggests that if you're on birth control pills, not birth control pills, if you're on hormone replacement, um, your risk of breast cancer is higher. And so we've really been advising women 
who develop breast cancer or who, or who are at risk for developing breast cancer, which is just about all women at some point, um, to stay off hormone replacement, especially don't do it more than five years. So this is actually a randomized trial from the Women's Health Initiative, a huge study. I think it was 10, 15, 20,000, 30,000 women. It's a lot of patients. And what they did in this trial was they did, you had to, if you had a hysterectomy because you didn't want to induce uh, uterine uh, hyperplasia, you had a hysterectomy, you were randomized to receive either nothing, an estrogen receptor, estrogen-only hormone replacement, or an estrogen and progestin hormone replacement. So it was a randomized prospective study. And they had presented this data a few years ago showing that it looked like there was no increased risk of breast cancer in the estrogen-only hormone replacement. There was in the estrogen and progestin hormone replacement. So this is actually now a follow-up data. This was presented on Friday morning and really didn't get a lot of the traction I thought it was going to in the breast cancer community, uh, as well as nationally, to be honest. Maybe I just wasn't looking at it, but I, I was a little surprised. Um, because what they showed is that if you had an estrogen-only hormone replacement, that not only was your risk of breast cancer reduced, but your survival from breast cancer, if you got it, was improved. So with an estrogen, now if you had an estrogen progestin combo therapy, which a lot of women take, um, your breast cancer incidence was increased and your survival, I think, was modestly decreased. So really what this is saying is that if women want to do estrogen replacement, I mean, this is implying it. I don't know if we're all going to do this yet as a community, but this implies if you want to give women hormone replacement now, it's okay to give them an estrogen-only pill and they probably should have some sort of, you know, if they, hopefully they had a hysterectomy or something by then, you know, so they don't get uterine uh, hyperplasia, potentially uterine cancer from that. So, but this is really, that's, I think, from a big public health perspective, you know, something that's really, I think, something that we are going to really think about now for the next couple months, try to decide what to make of it, you know, because this clearly could affect recommendations for hormone replacement uh, in women. Uh, and I think something that women have been clearly interested in for many, many years. So we'll see where that goes. I think that's that really struck me as another abstract. I think that really deserved a lot of attention. Wow. So you mentioned the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, over 10,000 attendees, which I believe is the largest medical conference that focuses on a single tumor type in the world. Uh, we spoke to one of your colleagues a few months ago, Dr. Erica Stringer-Reeser, uh, Associate Professor of Oncology at UAB, and she really kind of walked us through a timeline of how Breast cancer research has been the tip of the spear for precision medicine. Um, you know, why do you think that breast cancer has really led in the precision medicine approach to treating tumors? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that for the longest time, I don't think we lead anymore, I'd have to say, unfortunately, for a breast. That's good because other tumors are good at too. Probably better than we are. I think that forever we had the first targeted therapy, which is estrogen. I mean, or tamoxifen, right? We had that first. We had a targeted mutate. Or we had the estrogen receptor, and we targeted it with tamoxifen. We've done that for almost 50 years. Actually, probably more than 50 years now. We then had HER2, which is also probably in solid tumors, the first real target that people um, really could affect and affected natural history. And so that's why we led for the longest time. But actually, I think lung cancer took over. Um, uh, with, you know, with the EGF receptor amplification and mutation, with the ALK amplification, 
Uh, and I think that, um, you know, there are other tumor types now. And now with, uh, uh, you know, tumor mutational burden and all this immunotherapy and melanoma and other cancers, I think a lot of cancers are catching up or have exceeded breast cancer, especially in, in, in mutation detection. I think what's happening now, though, is breast cancer is going to catch up again. And, you know, I told you at least, you know, there's HER2 mutation, there's EGF, uh, there's estrogen receptor mutation, there's AKT mutation, there's PF kinase mutations, uh, all of which are clinically actionable. So now we have four mutations in breast uh, that are clinically actionable that weren't, that we didn't even, you know, consider three, four years ago. So I think in breast now we're starting to catch up uh, again in the precision medicine business. And that doesn't even talk about all the adjuvant. Uh, uh, assays we have, you know, things like Oncotype and Mamaprint and Endopredict, um, you know, that allow us to prognosticate women and potentially have them avoid chemotherapy in the early stage setting. So, you know, we have a lot of really interesting stuff in breast cancer and uh, we've had it in adjuvant. We still leave the adjuvant field, but I think we now have it in the metastatic field. We're kind of catching up to other tumors like lung. Dr. Adam Brufsky, Medical Director of the Women's Cancer Program at UPMC Hillman Cancer Center. For those out there who want to get in touch with you, Dr. Brufsky, do you have a, are you active on Twitter, social media? How can they get in touch with you if they um, see you or have you speak? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the best way to get hold of me, I do have a handle on Twitter on Breast Onc Doc, but I rarely use Twitter anymore. Um, I tend to do email. You can email me. It's brufskyam at upmc.edu. And you can find that information on our landing page at precisionmedicinepodcast.com. Dr. Brufsky, this is a lot of information, really chock full of, of, of good bits for people, um, medical professionals and patients. So please come back and revisit this episode. If you're out there listening to this, Dr. Brufsky, thank you for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter, at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. <laughs>